Okay, grab your Bibles, if you would. Um, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand, and one of our ushers would love to bring a Bible for you. Uh, there's, a, there's a need over here if one of the ushers can grab a Bible. If that's your first Bible, um, go ahead and keep it. If it's not, please return it so we can give it to someone who would like to take it home. Uh, Psalm 23 is our text today. It's about, uh, it's not quite middle, in the first third there. The book of Psalms is actually a book of song lyrics. And so this is the 23rd song, if you will, of an ancient, uh, what would be an ancient hymn book of a Hebrew. And like us, songs have this unique way of getting in our heads. And so these were likely used over and over and over again by ancient followers of the, God, uh, of the God of Israel. And they would have memorized these and known them off by heart. And they would have been easy to remember because they were put to music. We don't have the notes, we just have the lyrics, which is why our series has been called Lyrics. And this is a particularly popular song or psalm. So if you've ever kind of read in the book of Psalms, or perhaps you've gone to a funeral, there's a good chance you would have heard this song. It is quite popular in terms of Psalms. But we're going to go through it. And you'll notice that it's usually used in the context of death or deep darkness. That's no accident. Actually, that's... Um, that's that's perfect, but it's called a song or a psalm of confidence, meaning it's, sta- it's, it's something that they would have stated as a people to confidently remind them of who God was, confidently ar- remind them of what they had. It, I, I was trying to think of a way to liken it to something that we have in kind of our modern day, and all I could think of was the national anthem before a sporting event or a special event. During Remembrance Day, you know, you have a national anthem, and it, there's something about singing that national anthem, particularly if you're coming off something very tragic, right? So if there's a national tragedy at hand, and you sing the national anthem, and you're reminded of why you get to live in the country that you live in, because many people have sacrificed their lives before you in order for us to have a free country to live in, there's a sense of confidence about that, isn't there? That's how I think this psalm was intended to be. Not merely this simple kind of nice poem with a Thomas Kincaid painting above it. I think it's a song of confidence. There's something really unique about the imagery too because these songs are often attributed to a man by the name of David. David, You might not know who David is, but he is the prototypical Israelite, the prototypical follower of God, the greatest king that Israel ever had. When everyone thinks of great kings of Israel, they would think of King David, who, by the way, began his life as a shepherd. So he would have not only had confidence to sing this, whether or not he wrote it, we don't really know. But it actually doesn't matter because you can imagine this young shepherd boy who later is chased around by the most powerful king Before he was able to be king, he had to wait for the other king to die. And so essentially before he died, he chased David around the countryside, threatened his life. And so as David's in the wilderness, you can imagine this shepherd boy remembering this kind of song because it would have evoked all kinds of images that he would have been very familiar with. He would have known exactly what it was like to be a good shepherd because that was his world. 
Shepherds were often very lonely people. They had to spend a lot of time by themselves. It was usually given to the runt of the family, and so he was the runt of the family, and so that's the job that he got. But it's interesting that throughout the Bible Bible story, like the large picture Bible story, that shepherd is an image that comes up over and over again. The first, very first leader that God ever drew, Abraham, and the, the promise that was given to Abraham that he would have many, many nations, ultimately the family of God that now exists, was a shepherd. Moses, one of the greatest leaders ever to bring the people out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, spent about 40 years of his life as a shepherd. King David, shepherd. And then Jesus is revealed as what? Good shepherd. And 1 Peter talks about him in terms of leading the church as the chief shepherd. Did you know that the word elder, that the word pastor, I don't know if you knew this, but the word pastor is the Greek word for shepherd. So even in the way that we govern our church, we are constantly reminded of God's shepherding. This idea of shepherd metaphor is very important. And ultimately, it's not just about this picturesque image of God. It's about Jesus. Because this whole psalm is about God being our shepherd. Actually, it's, it, there's two ideas, the main one being a shepherd. But essentially, it's not a stretch at all to say this is actually about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And how he leads us and guides us. And so let's look at the first four verses. Actually, I told you that it's mainly about, it's, it says maybe at the uh, title of your passage there, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. Actually, there's two images there, and I think they're both very good. And they both kind of blend together because the first four verses are about what God is like as a shepherd. And then it's about what God is like as a host. So maybe perhaps it's a shepherd that, that is providing some sort of a meal or a banquet. They're not mutually exclusive of one another. They kind of blend in together. And the idea is there. And some scholars actually think this, that's actually describing the same shepherd. Doesn't matter. What's really important here is that you capture some of these images. And sometimes when you preach, you really have to work hard for word pictures and illustrations. Not in this one. Not in this song, not in this text. And the reason why is because it's poetry. And poetry, as you may or may not know, is full of images. That's the richness of poetry. That's why you write it. Songs have these crazy way of just giving these word, constant word pictures. And so essentially all we're going to do is just go through some of these pictures and be reminded of who Jesus is. Because maybe here this morning you've come and you don't think of Jesus today as a great provider and a great protector. You have a question mark about God's provision. And you have a question mark about God's protection for you. And you need to hear a national anthem, so to speak, stated about who God really is. That he is worthy to be trusted in as your protector and as your provider. So starting there in verse 1, I'll read it out for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, some of that language isn't necessarily how you might talk today, but let's go through some of these images. I mean, I I talked a little bit of the Lord is my shepherd, but this is an important understanding what a shepherd is. How many of you are sheep farmers? Anyone sheep farmers? I think we have one, but she's in children's today, isn't she? Um, I'm not a sheep farmer, so crazy enough, the person that cut my hair this week happened to be a sheep farmer from New Zealand. Um, So I was asking her, um, what sheep are like, and the first thing she said was sheep are really stupid. So it was, it kind of went downhill from there, but she began to talk about this idea of being a shepherd, which was, I thought, fascinating from someone who's actually raised sheep. Um, she didn't talk necessarily about how good she was, just mostly how stupid sheep were. Um, and some people think that's why God claims to be a shepherd is because we're so dumb, but I don't kind of think that's the idea here. I think it's the idea because that would have been a very, very common way of living for a lot of people. I mean, she kind of said, I'm, I'm from New Zealand, so guess what kind of farm I was from? And I, I, I kind of had a mind blank. I was like, I, I don't know, grain, grain farming? And she's like, oh, sheep farming? Like, everyone's a sheep farmer in New Zealand, kind of the way she talked. So people would be very familiar with this idea. We're not so much here. Animal husbandry is kind of low on the totem pole when it comes to what we know and are familiar with. But this would have been very, it would have evoked a very strong image for a lot of people. You would remember how the sheep smell. Been in the stampede? Anyone been in the stampede? Go to that little sheep area where they got all that dirty old wool and everyone's dirty fingers have touched that sheep. You know, never been to that part, obviously. Only us as a family. Are interesting creatures quiet though, kind of sit there and keep to themselves and, and, and they, they kind of follow everyone around. That's what she said. They, if, if one sheep kind of goes this way and it's the wrong direction, you have like a whole herd of sheep. I was like, that sounds like our culture, doesn't it? Like one kind of idiot moves this direction, then everyone stampedes after them regardless of whether it's the right way or not. She said, that's kind of how sheep work and they're hard to herd and uh, they're not really that aware of danger and they just basically, their defense mechanism is to turn their back to you, which isn't the best defense mechanism I've ever heard of in my life. Uh, They don't have claws, they don't have real teeth, they just have a hard roof in their mouth. Um, They don't know how to get down off things, they just know how to go up things. They actually can eat or drink uh, running water. They just prefer something that's really easy. Uh, they won't search for food. They kind of need to be led. Okay, got a, like a miniature view of what sheep are like. Now, does it make sense? They said, the Lord is our shepherd. No, it doesn't say that. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, you didn't pick up on this because you and I live in this individualistic culture that thinks we deserve a personal God. That's not the culture of the time. The culture of the time, you are a number. You just fit into the group. What's best for you is what's best for the group. That's the kind of culture they live in. And yet the author says, the Lord is my shepherd. Individual. 
That has huge, enormous meanings because that's how we get the idea that God is actually a personal God. That Jesus isn't just the God of the masses, that he's actually the God of each individual person. He's my shepherd. Everyone can say this. That's a miracle in itself. It's not the Lord is our shepherd. It's not the Lord is a shepherd. It's the Lord is my shepherd. Personal. He knows who you are, how old you are, what you look like, what you think, how you sin, whether you admit it or not. And this brings great comfort because if that's true, if the God of the universe is a personal God who knows who you are, then it makes sense that he says, I shall not want. Now, some of you heard that and you thought you heard, the Lord is my shepherd, so I get what I want. Right, that's how we think. We're materialistic. The Lord is my shepherd, so I get everything that I ask for. That's not what he's saying. That's not even what he's thinking. Remember, David's in the wilderness. He's not getting what he wants. He's not getting anything he wants, personally, materialistically. He's on the run. He's living in a cave. Everyone supposedly likes him, but the king at the time wants him dead. He's not thinking, I can get everything I want. What is he saying then? He's saying, obviously, the Lord is my shepherd. What I have is what I need. What I have is what I need. We need that, don't we? We need to state that over and over again. We need to sing this as our national anthem. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that he thinks I need. Some of you just need to repeat this over and over again because this is your prayer life. This is the great frustration in your life. You're not getting what you want. You want a better job. You want a better marriage. You want better kids. You want better city to live in. You want better neighborhood. You're asking for these things and you're not getting what you want because you read Psalm 23 and you said, I don't, I'm not going to be in want. But you need to hear that that's not what that text is saying. That what God has for those who love him is what they need for that moment. And that can apply to those who are even starving to death. I thought a lot about that this week. I thought, what if you had no food, nothing to drink? Could you still sing this? Not if you thought it meant that it just gets what you want and what makes you comfortable. But you could if it said, I have what the God of the universe thinks I need right now. That's a statement of confidence. Be easy to keep preaching on that, but we've got to move on. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. It's a good image. Sheep, again, they don't do a lot of investigating new territory. They kind of just go with what's in front of them. It's kind of like a, a young way of thinking, right? Like the big deal around my house with my kids, is when they ask where something is, we always say, open your eyes and look at your feet. It's usually right there. That's kind of how sheep act. They're like, well, there's no green grass here, so I guess there's none at all. That's why I said, he leads me. Even when I can't see it, and I don't get it, 
And I don't understand that I have to walk through this to get to green pastures. He leads me. See, this is not sheep-centric, actually. This is shepherd-centric song. He makes me lie down. He brings me to still waters. He doesn't have to. He could just say, hey, there's some stagnant water. Go for it. But he leads me to what can refresh my soul. That's how the, the author summarizes it. He restores my soul. That's his summary of those two statements. This is what God is like. This is what Jesus is like. He wants to restore your soul. He wants to calm you down. The way I translated it for me was, he calms me down and reminds me of who I am in him. He leads me to what really I need and restores what actually matters, which is my soul. What a great God. What a great picture. It's interesting as the, as the author continues, he doesn't simply say it for our sake, and this is why I say this is not, shep- this is not sheep-centric as much as shepherd-centric. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me to salvation. He leads me to the way that will provide what I actually need. Why? Exclusively for me? Well, I would say, yes, we benefit. But listen to the motivation for his name's sake. So many of us miss those words for his name's sake. And we need to hear this again. The the author is clearly a a beneficiary, but this, this verse reminds us that the credit needs to go to the benefactor, the one giving. It's his namesake. That this is, this is what's going to make God's name great. That what he gives to us is what we need, but it's going to make his name great and not ours. Do you know that's, con- do you feel that battle? When you're trying to make your name great, when you're trying to go after your own glory, your own weight, this word glory just gets so easily lost on us. And I think we need to take a, a moment and just, just kind of sit here for a second. It's not actually says the word glory, but his namesake has this idea of glory. The Bible uses the, the, the Hebrew word kabod. I don't know what the Greek word is. But this is what J.R. Vassar, who has written a book called Glory Hunger, because it's a book about how God deserves glory, but we try to steal it all the time. That's our life goal, it seems. That's why we're called sinful, is because we're trying to take away God's glory, and he's essentially the one deserving of it. And so he says, literally the word kabod speaks of fatness. It carries the idea of being weighty or heavy. It can be used literally to speak of the size of a person or an object, but more often it carries the idea of significance. The point is not the girth of something, but its greatness. In this sense, to be weighty is to be consequential or impressive, possessing grandness, splendor. It's for God's glory. It's for God's weight. It's for God's impressiveness. It's for God's greatness, his fatness, if you will. I know it sounds strange for us to talk like that, 
very popular writer by the name of C.S. Lewis has actually used this in the title of his book, and he calls his book The Weight of Glory. He's trying to grasp this sense of the awesomeness of God. It's very hard for God to be your shepherd when you care about your fatness more than you care about his. You can quote me on that and Twitter that, but you better do it in context. That one of the reasons why we have trouble trusting the Lord God as our Savior, as Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our shepherd, is because we want our glory. And this reminds us that if he is in charge, it all works out better. That if his glory is the one that will become weighty, that will become heavy, then we can trust him for it. Jesus was deeply concerned for the Father's glory. You see this kind of when you watch the story of even his life in the New Testament accounts called the Gospels. You see that Jesus sets aside even his own feelings and emotions for the sake of his Father's glory. And by doing so, not only does he save us, but he shows us the way to do it. He shows us that this is the way to receive the shepherd care of our Father, is to set aside our glory for the sake of his. Some of us, this is all we'll get out of this morning. As we know, there's something in us that says, I know. I have searched out for my own glory and it's not working out very well. And here's my recommendation. Let the Lord be your shepherd. Let Jesus make his name great in you. Set aside yourself. Let him lead you to quiet waters, to green pastures. Sheep are supposed to be led kindly. I don't know if you've ever seen the difference between like a sheep and a goat. The Bible sometimes talks about these two. That one day judgment is described as this great separation between sheep and goats. And if you've ever watched sheep being led somewhere, they are really docile animals. I think that's why they're raised so easily. Is, is they essentially, all you got to do is just kind of say like, go this way. And they're like, well, okay, let's go this way. But goats are a different story. Goats won't go anywhere you want them to. No one has these cute little stories about goats prancing around. It's, it's like harsh billy goat kind of stubbornness. You never hear of like a kind goat. You hear of a stubborn goat. They don't want to go where you tell them to go. So he says, be a sheep. Be led. Set aside your glory for his. Moving on to verse four there, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That's kind of, we, we, we've often got that image confused. Even though I walk through death, even though I walk through the valley of death, it actually says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. 
No commentators and no scholars could agree on what it actually meant, if it was a specific place. I know we'd like to have this place where everything was really dark, but that's really just the idea. It's, it's vague enough that we get this idea that it is a dark place. Okay, when I say dark place, some of you actually think depression. You don't think of like a physically dark place. I mean, on our way home from vacation, which was fantastic, by the way, part of our trip was through uh, kind of the, the Kootenai Mountains in the dead of night, okay? There was a forest fire kind of west, and so the smoke had even covered the moon. So it was like pitch black, and we went past a cemetery, and all I could think of was, don't stop here, don't stop here, don't stop here. Jesus, please, don't get a flat here. There's no one on this road. I know you're in charge, but seriously, a cemetery, it's crazy, right? Any of us like eagerly walk through cemeteries in the dark? No, there's something about that that just evokes this sense of fear. That's what the author's trying to image here. Even though I walk through the darkest place I can think of, either that's physically, maybe that's spiritually. Some of you are in very spiritually dark places. Emotionally, it's just dark. You're, you're fighting. You're fighting against the darkness. It feels like you're kicking at it sometimes. The author says, even though I walk through this, I will fear no evil. There's no fear. Not because I don't have to go through the darkness, but because I know who's leading me. I know who my shepherd is. I know that my shepherd will fight off anything that he thinks needs fighting off. I know that my shepherd will protect whatever needs I need protection from. He says, for you are with me. The God of the universe is with you in the darkest moment of your life. Some of our prayers are for God to take the darkness away, but I don't think he always does. Sometimes he does. Sometimes the darkness just evaporates, poof. But lots of times it doesn't. Because Jesus doesn't require there to be light for him to be a guide through the darkness. In fact, he promises more trouble on this earth than he does good things, it seems. That following him seems to create more tension in this world than it creates just easy living. And David, when he writes this, is writing from real honesty. He might actually be in a cave. He might actually be humming this as he's in this dark cave thinking the enemy's right outside. Why? Because he remembers two weapons of a shepherd. Don't feel like weapons now, right? Rod and staff, they don't feel like you never find rod and staff on like forged in fire or anything like that. You wouldn't, they don't evoke this sense of weaponry, but it was a serious weapon in those days. A rod was like, you, find, you, you fend off coyotes. The rod was like the weapon, the long stick, you can imagine. Wild dog, long stick. Who was going to win? Generally, the long stick, right? It's this image of God's protection, fending off 
whatever needs to be fended off. The staff typically had a little bit of a hook on it. Um, it's not really effective use today. Now they just use sheepdogs anyways, not really staffs. Um, when we were raising chickens on our farm, we, it wasn't a staff as much as a long hook with a, or a long wire with a little hook on the end and you just kind of go in the chicken coop and you just hook the legs of the chicken. And you could literally move a chicken out of any sense of danger because chickens are, believe it or not, even stupider than sheep. That's why we eat so much of them. That's the idea here is the sheep gets himself in trouble and that kind of rain, that kind of territory or that kind of landscape would have been like very rocky, a lot of steep ledges, said your staff can get me out when I get myself in trouble. Anyone ever wonder if God's going to get you out of the trouble that you know full well you've gotten yourself into? And you, you go, this isn't God's fault. This is my fault. I'm stupid. I did it again. He warned me. He helped. He bring, brought people alongside to help me. Even the, the preacher even said something about this on Sunday, and I still got myself into this mess. That's when the shepherd's rod and staff will comfort you. Because Jesus is capable of pulling us out of these spots. It's what he does. It's what he's like. He loves to be known as the good shepherd. The verse that I put up at the very beginning, I don't know if we concentrated on it, probably, why, probably went right through it. It says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Does that sound like a self-centered shepherd? No. Twice. I'm the good shepherd because I lay my life down for the sheep. I don't do what's best for me. I do what's best for you. So we've got these two crazy things, that, this commitment to God's glory, but God wanting and knowing that what he does is going to be the best for us. So the rod and the staff, they comfort him. He keeps going. You prepare a table before me. There's a little break maybe in your Bible, a shift in paragraph, just a little bit of a shift in idea. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Again, remember who this psalm is attributed to someone who has real enemies. I don't know if you've ever had enemies. Like people out to get you. Like you show up for work and for eight hours they're after you. They want your job, they want you gone. Very few of us can actually say this. For the most part, it's just putting up with kind of annoying people. But this guy has real enemies that want his life, that have directions from the king to, if they see this writer, to kill him. I don't know if you have a bounty on your head or if you know what that's like. If you do, I'm interested in that story. Come talk to me afterwards. You'll show up as an illustration sometime. So he's not talking just out of the air. Like this is real experience for him. And he says, you set up a feast even though the enemy can still see. And there's nothing they can do about it. I love that picture. 
It's this, again, statement of confidence. It's like the enemy's right there. This looks like a good spot to set up a nice, beautiful, bountiful feast right there where they can see you and they can't do anything about it. Statement of confidence, isn't it? This is what God is like. This is our shepherd that sometimes he just loves to show off his glory and he's willing to have us go through these dark valleys of life so that he can set up this beautiful table in front of all the enemies and show off that he actually is much better than all of them. That he's greater. Sometimes that's hard for us to take because we want God to change our surroundings, our atmosphere, but sometimes he loves to do it in the context of danger. If it's about his glory, then we can accept this. But if it's about our glory in a way we would think, then we have a hard time with this. Some of you, Jesus is just waiting to set up a table. He just wants you to feast. But he wants you to do it so that you enjoy it and so those who hate him can see how good it really is. Because it's not actually completely about you. It's about God's glory. Do you need to be reminded of this? I know I do. The cup and the oil. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Okay, this crazy tradition for us. Let's just admit this is strange for us to hear, right? Like if I said, hey, this afternoon, why don't you come over for, uh, for lunch? We're just having some cold cuts and I'm going to pour some olive oil over your head. You'd be like, I think I'm out. But this was a way of actually honoring the guests. I'm not sure how they got into that tradition, to be honest. Seems like a strange way to get into a tradition, but they would sometimes add perfume to the oil. Sometimes uh, we hear that they, if, if it was a man, they would put it on his beard. It's like, oh, I kind of get that. Okay, it's starting to happen with a little bit of the beard stuff that's been going on. So literally, you come in to the feast and you would know who was honored because you could smell them or her, right? Is this starting to make a little bit of sense at least? You'd be like, where's my place? And you'd be like scooching down the aisle and be like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a table of uh, seat of honor right there. That smells good. That's the idea. He said, you, you anoint me. You make me the honored guest. You make my, my cup like overflow. Like you ever been to a restaurant where the service is really good and you can't drink fast enough? The server comes and like fills up your coffee like constantly. Would you like me to warm that up for you? And he's just he goes, man, that's good service. My coffee cup is overflowing all the time. It's always hot. Yeah, that's the idea. With the, with the goodness of God. And he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He kind of breaks out of kind of some of the imagery, and he says, goodness and mercy. It's really the best way you can, in, in Hebrew, that you could possibly say just the, the, bounty, the bountifulness of God. Mercy is a word that's often translated mercy, but it really means steadfast love. We actually had a whole sermon on this earlier in, in the year when we went through the attributes of God the Father, God's mercy, his steadfast love, or as the uh, Jesus' storybook Bible says, the never giving up, never ending, never running out love. It's a great image. The kind of love that just never gives up on you. The kind of love that never runs out. There's never 
You're never in shortage of the love of God, the kind that will go on and on and on and extend past even your lifetime. That's what chases you around. So you can imagine David, who's being chased by his enemies, and he says, no, the Lord is my shepherd. It's goodness and mercy of God that's going to chase me around. Some of you need to hear that this is what God is like. He's not a God who sits in his office and just waits for us to show up to him. He's a God who's actively chasing after you with goodness and mercy for his namesake. You're that valued. You know, there's a lot of other religions that put a high emphasis on what we do for God, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is all about what God does for us. The author never says, I earned this. The author never says, by what I have done, I have received this. I have, at least I'm better than the other people. And that's how some of us operate. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not, we do lots of good things for God and God because he has time, shows up. No, the gospel is, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before you understood it, God devised a plan to chase you down and give you goodness and mercy. Steadfast love. Maybe you don't feel it, but that's true. And even today, it may not feel like it, but I... I'm saying with a statement of confidence because this is based upon what? God's reputation is at stake. Don't you think he's going to stand behind his word for his name's sake? That's essentially what he's saying. That's the way we know that this check is going to get cashed. He says, what, what's the proof that I can cast a check of my goodness and mercy and my love for you, my steadfast love? that I will chase you down and lavish on you everything that you need because my reputation's at stake. He's going to do it, friends. He's going to do it. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In those days, you actually didn't get to go in to the church building. I don't know if you knew that, but the old way, the old system that's laid out in the Old Testament which is old, and that's why the new is called the good news. The old way was a representative from amongst the people was able to go in and purely worship God if they followed certain rules. And they went in and worshiped God within the tabernacle or the temple or the house of the Lord, as they would call it. And then they would come out and explain their experience to you. And that's how you knew you were in touch with God. But when Jesus came, he actually ripped the veil of the temple in two and he says, everyone who believes in my name gets to come in and experience the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that a miracle? How would you like to show up for church today and have to wait outside while I had a great prayer time and then I came out and told you how awesome it was and that was church for you? Don't you think this is a better way? Why do you think he's so excited about this? Why do you think he ends this by saying, I get to live in the house of the Lord forever? He didn't even get to see that fully. But we do. The author 
initially never got to fully experience God the way we get to experience God. So I'm saying, friends, what is holding you back from trusting the Lord as your shepherd? Maybe you've heard this over and over and over again, but this is another call to say, look how good he is. Look how awesome he is. Look at the weightiness of God here. What the heck could possibly hold you back from trusting in the Lord as your shepherd? As the band comes, I'll pray. Come on up, guys. Jesus, thank you that you are a great shepherd. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you spread a table of bounty before our enemies. Thank you that you lead us beside green pastures and still waters. Thank you that you restore our soul and you give us what we need even when you don't give us what we want. Thank you that we, you are with us when we are in the deepest darkness of our entire life. Thank you for your rod and your staff. May they comfort us today that we know you protect us and defend us. Thank you for chasing us down with goodness and mercy or steadfast love. Jesus, thank you for being our great shepherd and that we are allowed to dwell with you forever. Amen. As the band begins to play their song, I just want to invite you as well to consider this as we take what we would call communion, the Lord's table, Eucharist. It depends on your tradition, what you're comfortable with. The reason why this is so important is this is an opportunity for us to personally experience God. There's nothing magical about this, but there's something very special about it because these elements represent the living and dying of Jesus Christ. The bread, which symbolizes the life of Jesus, that God did not come to us just as a ghost, but came in person for us. The cup represents the blood or the love of God who shed his blood for us. And so let's come and celebrate that together as a community.